Your sensors are correct. Do not adjust your heading. Your heading. You've discovered the Omega Particle. Streaming to the Alpha Quadrant and beyond. 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 Here's your host. The anchorman of the Federation. The doctor of Dilithium. This is Jonathan Wiegand. Yes, and welcome to the Omega Particle. I'm your gracious and humble host, Jonathan Wiegand, here in the bunker on the eastern coast of these United States. And boy, we had a crazy week this past week. Um, a lot going on in the world of Star Trek. Um, we celebrated, of course, our 55th anniversary since the very first original series episode, which was awesome. It makes me think, wow, like I feel like I'm getting really old because I remember the 50th anniversary and that was five years ago. Seems like that was yesterday. Um, we got a couple like news notes and little like plugs for uh, some friends that I have. When I found out this first piece of news, I was kind of disheartened. And apparently, on October first, Voyager and Enterprise are leaving Netflix. The reason is is because they Paramount is trying to get all of Star Trek content on one single streaming flat platform, and that makes perfect sense. You know, like. You want to have everything consolidated, so if people are wondering or looking for stuff, it's all in one place. Also, it's a big cash cow, so why not? But anyway, like that's really the only reason I keep Netflix, is to watch Star Trek. Now, I mean, there's other great shows in there, but I don't want to keep it for nothing, you know? That's like 15 bucks a month, so Jason, if you're listening to this, uh, we might cancel Netflix. <laughs> I'm moving on to another media big thing. Uh, that came out this week because of the 55th anniversary is that GOG.com has revealed that they're going to release, I don't know if they're remasters or they remastered when they are, um, the six classic like track PC games and they're available for download right now. The interesting part, this is the first time since all of these games have been like on a modern video game storefront before it's kind of been like, if you can find a copy, maybe somewhere like your buddy from middle school had one and you have to like pay him like, 12 bucks for it like but now there's like a huge storefront you can buy them so it's a lot easier to get so that's awesome but um again that's uh gog.com slash partner slash star trek you can go there and they're ten dollars a piece apparently they're really i'm not really into pc gaming but i figured maybe a lot of you guys are and as always if you guys have businesses or blogs or things like that that you want to promote please let me know um, I'm happy to do that free of charge. Uh, I'm not in this to make money. As you mentioned before, my friend Jason has a wonderful movie blog and the address is in the episode description. So you can go there. I think it's called Jason Goes to the Movies. A new one, it's called, let me see if I get this right, avintagenomad.com. Is that what it is, Luna? It is. Okay, great. Yeah, it's one of our uh, older friends. And um, yeah, apparently she quit her job is what I was reading to, to like pursue a business. So we thought we'd help them out a little bit. Again, all their information is in the episode description. So go there, support them and hang them out. But you guys didn't come here for plugs and for random PC Star Trek news. Um, we're about to get into Romance Volume 2, the best and worst relationships. If you're not really into the other Star Trek series, these might be a surprise or spoiler. So just let you guys know. But Luna, let's roll right into it. So the first one 
If you guys have not listened to volume one, I would strongly encourage you guys to do that. Um, but this is one that was really back and forth, if I should include on the first volume. And it got the cut, but it's number one best, in my opinion, for this episode of volume two. And that is um, Ben Sisko and Cassidy Yates. Now, of course, this isn't Ben Sisko's first marriage. Um, his wife, Jennifer, died in the Battle of 359. And we see that in the first episode of Deep Space Nine. Um, if you're wondering the Battle of, I'm sorry, Battle of Wolf 359. We have to forgot the Wolfie. Um, <laughs> and that's the battle where the Borg invaded the Alpha Quadrant, destroyed like an armada of Federation ships. And I think it was like 20,000 or 30,000 ships because of Picard's knowledge. So Cisco wife died in that. But over the course of the series, and this is what makes DS9 so great and one of my favorite um, Trek series out there, is because they deal with things other than just like your run-of-the-mill, corny like monster of the week type of things. Like they actually have like great character arcs. And one of those is, is Ben Sisko trying to cope with being this emissary and then also coping from grief and like recovering from grief, being okay with like falling in love, in love with another woman and having a relationship with another woman other than his, his wife that has passed. So it's really great to kind of see that. And you normally don't see that in kind of sci-fi, especially Star Trek. So I really enjoy that. And plus, um, <laughs> I'm even thinking about doing this because my, my wife Stormy suggested this and it was really good. It was probably doing like a strong women of Trek episodes. And I really love Cassidy Yates because she is this strong like female lead and she's a freighter captain, eventually works for the Bajoran government and can live on the station with Ben and hijinks ensue. And um, I think she even gets charged and goes to prison in like the later seasons because she works for the Maquis and does stuff. But to me, they have one of the best relationships because they argue, but they never let the argument become bigger than the relationship. And they both have principles and values and they respect that in one another. I think at the end of the day, that's what makes a good relationship a great one. To me, it's also one of the best because it has one of the best endings. And it's a heartbreaking ending too, because we see Cisco and go and join the prophets in the celestial temple and Cassidy's just like he's like wait for me he's like she's like how long will it be he's like maybe a year maybe 10 maybe 100 and so it's like oh okay she's just kind of like this widow-esque type of waiting for him to come back if he comes back that's just to me one of the like most heartbreaking endings but also like maybe one of hope because as we know with the deep space nine documentary they were thinking about bringing Cisco back and then you get that whole relationship back again too in that famed season eight and one last point on Cisco and Cassidy Yates is that I think it works so well because Cassidy Yates and Cisco really incorporate Jake into the relationship as well Jake is of course Captain Cisco's son and I've been in a what do you call it I don't even know what's the word like a by something family like a blended family is that what they call it now whatever i don't know if it's politically correct <laughs> but it's 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 like a blended family i've done it twice yeah my dad's been remarried that much and sometimes a step parent doesn't actually enjoy or like incorporate you or they kind of box you out she doesn't do that and i that's really great kind of shows her character i really think that's again a great commentary on society and a great like thing we can hope for in all blended family relationships, you know, that they would become family. 
And so that's the best number one. And boy, we got a doozy for the worst number one. Oh, God. Um, this is one that even when I was watching this series through the first time, I knew, okay, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. Um, it's Kess and Neelix. Um, to me, it's definitely one of the worst, most cringy relationships in all of Trek. I mean, the fact that Neelix helped dupe and deceive Voyager into helping save Kess from the Okampa com- quote-unquote compound underground it's kind of bound to fail, you know? I mean, it's, it reminds me of the, like King Edward. I think it was King Edward the eighth or ninth. My wife would know, but he abdicated the throne of England for an American divorcee named Wallace. And the dude gave up everything, gave up his titles, gave up his wealth, gave up, I mean, the crown for this one lady and talk about freaking pressure. And I mean, at that point, and it's kind of the same exact thing with Kess and Neelix, like Kess can never say it's like, well, it isn't working out, <laughs> you know, because this one person has done so much for them and they've done overwhelming sacrifice for that other person. And so it kind of is bound to fail because when you don't have that freedom to do so and explore and be like, hey, I'm unhappy in relationship, it, it's usually not a good sign. So to me, that's the vibe I get between Kess and Neelix. It's not this lovey-dovey. It's kind of like, uh, I kind of have to be with you, you know? And nobody wants that. And going back to, like, things we've talked about on the prior podcast episodes is, like, we know Kess was brought into Voyager for, like, the pure sex appeal. And the writers decided to make her a faithful companion to, to like, Neelix, a Talaxian, like... It's a weird flex <laughs> and it didn't work out because the rating suffered and eventually left Kess on the cutting room floor and they brought in seven of nine for that sex appeal for the ratings. It was, it just didn't make sense from a, a writing point of view. Like, okay, we're going to bring this person in to be sex appeal. Number one, but then number two, we're going to have her in a relationship. And then number three, it's going to be a cringy relationship where like Neelix all of a sudden, I think in like season two or season three, he just gets crazy jealous, like out of nowhere, like out of freaking nowhere. It reminds me of Back to the Future when Marty McFly is like, nobody calls me chicken. And we're like, since when? All combines into like one of the most terrible relationships in all of Star Trek. So it's bad. But I think, I mean, they eventually do resolve and Kes goes off and explores her psychic powers, aka gets written off. <laughs> and um, it, it kind of gives Neelix a little bit better character arc in the later season so they kind of set him free and he can I think he pursues even a Klingon woman once and it's just it's just better um overall when they're not in a relationship so it's better for them to be apart thank you writers of Voyager anyway let's get on to best number two so best number two this was really close to like making into the volume one but I decided against it and that's Chief O'Brien and Keiko now we all know that Chief O'Brien is the most important person in the history of the Federation. Uh, that's a nod to Lower Decks. When TNG came out, it like changed how a starship would look. You know, this flagship of the Federation looks more like a courtyard Marriott than an actual battle cruiser. I mean, they have kids on board. There's a freaking petting zoo. Uh, and he, I mean, they have like archaeology conferences there. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of not this what you would think of this like tip of the spear in this fleet but when you incorporate that whole like new 
function of that starship, you get a whole new level of storytelling that you wouldn't normally get like on the original series or even other sci-fis too. And that's one of those new levels is dating and even marriage relationships. And that's what makes O'Brien and Kega one of the best because we follow this couple from like their wedding in 10 forward all the way to the birth of their second child on DS9, which is surrogate by Kieran Reese. Long story. <laughs> and um, eventually we see them take it easy and go to planet Earth and teach at the academy. It's one of the best because like you see a lot more in DS9 than you would see in TNG. And that is like the couple actually like going character arcs and like supporting one another and exploring their relationship and seeing like, hey, we can have disagreements. Like Keiko was being charged with like teaching um, the prophets in her school. She was like, that's not right. That's we shouldn't mix religion and, and school and et cetera, et cetera. And Chief O'Brien protected his wife and supported her, even if like we don't necessarily know if he agreed with her. But of course, he was going to support her and um, have her back on that. But the, but the relationship with why it's one of the best, in my opinion, is it offers some of the most random like couple adventures that like no other really couple has in Star Trek. And I mean, for example, like there was one in DS9 where like Keiko gets possessed by a Paul Wraith and then like orders um, Chief O'Brien around to do all these crazy stuff to to shoot like a, I think like a tachyon beam into the wormhole. And it's like the whole time it's like the super creepy vibe. But then again, like I mentioned before, like in another DS9 episode, like Kira becomes a surrogate and they transfer the baby from Keiko to her. And then they have this weird like tricycle relationship and Kira moves into their quarters and it's just odd. And then Worf delivers the first baby on TNG because uh, Miles can't get there. And it's just, yeah, it's just very odd, but it's still enjoyable and kind of a funny like almost poke the bear kind of thing. It's like Chief O'Brien has to suffer and like <laughs> he just can never have like just a normal day at the office. So I think it's um it's one of the best for that reason. But as we wrap up, we're going to go on to the worst number two. And again, like the first one, it's also a big doozy. So the worst number two, this is the first time we've had an Abrams film on really any of the podcast episodes i really avoid talking about the abrams films because um they're not good <laughs> they're not very good so the first one's not bad but into darkness and then beyond is not is not the tip of the spear it's not what we want usually one of the main issues i have with all of the abrams uh, movies besides the lens flares is that we see spock and Uhura get together and it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why? I know it's like, I don't know if they're trying to be different, if that was his motivation. Like, he was like, well, we want to be different than the original series. So instead of uh, Kirk and Yoroa, we're going to have Spock. Ooh. And it's just like, there's no real chemistry at all um, on the set, like as them as actors or as characters on the screen. And it just seems like the only reason... It happened was because the execs at Paramount wanted it. Now, I wouldn't have a problem if the writing was there and the chemistry was there. I'd be like, oh, okay. But they just, like, foiled everything. So they're going to take this random relationship, number one, and then kind of stop it in the other parts of the, the other movies. And 
there's really no explanation. And so, I mean, I understand if it's like, well, Spock's a Vulcan and he had a romantic fling with that one episode because of those airborne spores. Besides that, there's really no like hardcore footage of Spock being romantic at all. And I think they just did this to be, to be different. And I should say, I don't like it unless it's backed up, you know, unless it's actually like well thought out, well-crafted, multi-movie kind of relationship and you see develop that's one thing but the way they do it now is just is just awful and nobody enjoyed it and it just kind of left the audience questioning what was going on um i will say this there's a fun fact um the abrams films did do something good in the very first star trek um labeled star trek um the very opening scene we see chris hemsworth play james Hughes kirk's dad and the fun part is, is like through that role, he got an audition for Thor. So if that, if he didn't go to the audition for Thor, who would have known what would have happened in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? But a um, little fun fact there for the uh, Abrams universe. So going on to our last best and worst. Um, again, all the best ones, I was like, it was a real big debate. But um, this was our first one from Discovery for this episode. And... This is Stamets and Colbert. Um, again, Trek is always pushing the boundaries and really kind of, again, being an example, commenting on society and Disco or Discovery is no exception. You know, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with Discovery, but this is one of the love aspects of it. Um, it's one of the most groundbreaking relationships to come out of Star Trek in a really, really long time. And it sets the mood for Discovery that... It's going to be groundbreaking, but not over the top. You know what I mean? And I think it's Disco did a great job and couldn't have done more like a better job than bringing these two characters together. It's not treated as like a token thing, you know, or that's the whole aspect of the relationship. Because this, if this is really in, you know, hundreds of years in the future, I don't think it would matter. You know, it just would matter. It's treated with respect, just almost an air of just being casual. And I kind of got a lot of shit creek vibes from it. And where they're like, yeah, they're gay, but who cares? It's like, yeah, who cares? And one of the best arcs, I think, of the relationship is when Colbert comes back from the dead and th those whole like plot points. And I mean, it's really good writing. Like, would they be the same person or would they have to kind of do what Colbert did and he needed space to figure things out and if he really loves Stamets and it goes back and forth and then also the pain of like seeing your loved one come back but then them not reciprocate that and it's and it added a lot of depth to the show which was heavily needed because I mean we have these a lot of aspects of the show is this giant mushroom network on space bears so we needed some like good depth to ground the show and their relationship did that yeah, and I think, like I said, the way they brought them together and kept them together really grounded the show and made it one of the best relationships in all of Star Trek. So for the worst three, I wanted to include this because it's kind of worse, but kind of one of my favorites too. And I wanted to include it because I don't know if I'll do a volume three, to be honest. Doing six total is a lot. <laughs> so um, six or seven total, so... I think ultimately I just want to make sure this got it because I think it's going to definitely come to play when we see Picard premiere. And that is Q and for lack of a better term, 
Mrs. Q. <laughs> we see on Voyager that um, it kind of this backstory. So we see Q get, or how can I even describe it? So we see a Q, like he's in prison in an asteroid. Voyager finds him, lets him out. This Q decides to like, he wants to kill himself. He does. And it starts the civil war in the Q continuum. So Q reaches out to Janeway to have a baby so the Q and the human race can merge and bring a new era of peace in the continuum. Well, if we have any casual fans listening, we probably just lost them. Uh, and I mean, so the backstory continues. Janeway refuses, as we all know. But Q eventually makes a child with Mrs. Q. And then we see Q Jr. come down the pike in a couple of years later in Voyager. But it's one of the best and worst because we see a larger explanation of the Q, the Q continuum. Like we see it more than just a dusty desert like gas station. We see it kind of explain that there's movers and shakers. There's thought. There's debate. There's evolution. It's not just stagnant thing of these creatures that are omnipresent. And I think it's going to be, could be, my prediction is maybe incorporated a lot into season two because of the time trial aspect that they're thinking about bringing into Picard and having an explanation of Q or a firm understanding is really important. So that's why I think it's one of the best, but um, one of the worst because the acting is terrible and the writing is not great. And it's over-the-top drama for no reasons. It's puns upon puns upon puns. And it's just great. I mean, John DeLance is being John DeLance. He's being great. And I can't really fault it for too much. He has, I mean, they only can do what they can do with the material that they're given. But um, it's one of the best, but also one of the worst. And I just want to include it beforehand. So if you haven't watched those episodes about the whole Q arc on Voyager, I think it's season three. I'd definitely check it out. Um, it's it's really wild, but um, yeah, they make it into like this civil war, antebellum type of like conflict, and so that Janeway can understand it. And yeah, it's it's kind of wild. But anyway, I would highly recommend it. And who knows, it may come to play in future seasons. So have a one up on your friends on that. Again, um, that has been volume two of the best and worst relationships in all of Star Trek. Again, feel free to check out the links in the episode description for my couple friends' blogs and websites. Help support them. They're great people and um, drive up their traffic. I know a lot of them have social media. And speaking of social media, um, thank you guys so much for your continued support. Um, you can find us on Facebook at the Omega Particle Podcast, Instagram at Omega Particle underscore, and Instagram at Omega Particle Podcast. So that's pretty easy. <laughs> And uh, it's like they did that on purpose. No. So uh, thank you guys so much again for your support. And we'll be bringing it back to you very soon. We have a couple of things down the pipeline that are really fun and exciting. I think, like I mentioned before, we're doing a strong Women of Trek episode coming up, which I'm excited about. But again, thank you all so much for listening. And always remember, second start of the right, straight on till morning. <laughs>